invite you to turn in your Bibles if you have one with you or there's one nearby and you're faster than your neighbor to Mark chapter 1. We're going to consider this morning the first 15 verses of Mark's gospel, his account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. A year ago, a local coffee shop wrote on its outside sandwich board, January was a rough year, but we made it. That was a year ago, how little we knew what the year would bring, what 2020 would bring to us. Because a year ago, we weren't yet talking about masks and quarantines. We didn't yet know the name George Floyd. The president in the presidential election race was just underway. Little did we know what this year would bring of interest for us. But even today, we can look back and say more accurately, I, I hope 2020 was a rough year indeed, but we made it. But let's be honest, this morning, we're probably still weary. Life may not have changed as drastically as we were at least implicitly hoping when the, with the change of the new year. And here we are. We're in need of good news this morning, and that's my hope for us to hear from God's word this morning as we look at these first 15 verses of Mark's gospel. So would you follow along as I read to you this morning from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I, will, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were, were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray as we consider together these words. Father, we pray again this morning that you would send out your light and your truth that they would lead us, that they would guide us, that they would take us to the place where you are, that we might be changed. Father, we can read words on a page and get some understanding, but we pray this morning for movement of your spirit in our midst to bring true conviction, to bring repentance, and to bring belief, and to bring life. We pray all of this in the strong name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. When I was in college, I had the chance to take a hiking trip at upstate New York, and 
the experience was, was part of a leadership sort of development kind of thing that a group of friends and I decided to go on, decided to embark on. And part of this experience in upstate New York in the woods, literally in the woods, was the experience that we had to, we each of us had to spend 24 hours in the woods by ourselves, completely alone. If, I remember, if my memory serves correctly, I had my sleeping bag, I had my Bible, I had a notebook, I had a roll of toilet paper, and nothing else. Because we were, we were, they asked us to fast for this time as well. 24 hours in the woods with no food. And just so you know, I didn't even own a cell phone at this point in my life. This was 1990, summer of 94. I didn't even own a cell phone. We had no computer. I had never experienced solitude like this. And it was fascinating. When you're in the woods like that, you hear everything, right? Because there's, we were separated far enough that we couldn't even hear, each, hear one another from our group. So every little thing that you hear, it makes you kind of twitch and wonder, what is that? What, is, what, break, what made that stick break? What made those leaves rustle? Is it the wind or something else? Should I be worried? How worried should I be? Will I get to sleep all night? This is the experience of being in the woods like that for 24 hours by myself. It seems that there's something truly American about wanting to survive alone in nature. We're fascinated by living off the land, by enduring whatever nature would send our way. It's built into our geography, it's built into our national lore. Some of us had the experience of, in high school or early college, reading Henry David Thoreau write these words. I went to the woods because I wanted to live, I wished to live deliberately, to confront only the essential facts of life and see if I could learn what, it had, what I had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not yet lived. Now, we know from the historical record that Thoreau wasn't quite living in solitude at that point. He was by himself in a cabin, true, but he was close enough to town to walk back to town and he saw people regularly because he knew he needed that in the midst of his solitude. Part of our lore is also, if, if your memory serves you correctly, is, is the story of Christopher McCandless, who in the, the early 90s graduated from college, gave away the rest of his college fund and took off for the West. He found himself two years later in Alaska Again, doing what he could to live off the land with very few resources. People offered to help him, and he refused it. And it eventually cost him his life as he died in September of 92. It was made into, written, written about in a book by John, Krak, John Krakauer called Into the Wild, and it was also made a movie. Even, it, even though it ended abruptly the way that it did and tragically the way that it did, it still fascinates us, right? I've talked to students in the past who have said they're captivated by his heroism and by, by his vision for living alone in the woods. It captivates us. Now, when we get to these first verses of, the, of the Mark's account of Jesus' life, they read like this strange overview of, of significant events in Jesus' life, no doubts. Matthew and, and Luke both spend much more space describing what was happening in Jesus' life at this moment. And in fact, it's caused some to wonder, was Mark just sort of cutting and pasting and piecing together these accounts just so that he could get to the real point that he wanted to make? But as we look carefully, I want you to see that Mark is doing far more than that. There are several points at which we, we scan through these verses and we see him repeating himself and repeating key words to bring this all together. And, and one of the key words that, that he does this with is the word wilderness. It shows up in verse 2, again in verse 4, again in verse 12, and again in verse 13. It, it presents the backdrop of what he wants to say. Now, when, you, when we hear this phrase, wilderness, what, what's trying, what he's trying to convey to us is not this American vision of self-reliance, so to speak. But he's talking about a, a desolate place, a lonely place, a solitary place. You see, the, the focus here is that John and then Jesus are away from civilization, away from cities, and away from villages. 
First John, and then Jesus comes out to join him. Being in the wilderness highlights our isolation, our vulnerability, and our need. Do you see that? You see, as much as we want to make it the, the American dream to be able to do that, to move somewhere and to live completely self-sufficiently, the reality is what we experience in such isolation is vulnerability, is, is need, is isolation. I wonder if 2020 has felt like that kind of wilderness for you. I wonder if you've, not, not the romantic living on your own kind of isolation, but the place of isolation, a place of fear, and a place of need. Are you getting tired of having to be so self-reliant, of being separate from people around you as much as we have to be now? I want us to consider the, 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 this morning the, the, this, that this place of wilderness, even this place in 2020 that we find ourselves, is the place where we find Jesus because that's where Jesus came to find us, his people. Right away in the first verse, Mark tells us what he's writing. He says there in, in verse, at the beginning of verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that word gospel, for us in today's day and age, seems to re reference these first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see them as sort of biographical type accounts of the life of Jesus. But when Mark first wrote those words 2,000 years ago, they, they didn't have that connotation quite yet. That wouldn't come until about the second century. You see, at this point, the word gospel simply meant this. It was an announcement of good news. When the emperor had, a, had a set his firstborn son, a gospel was proclaimed because the new emperor was born, who would eventually become divine according to their belief system. It was, a, it was not a written account of Jesus' life. It was an announcement, a proclamation of good news that the world is about to change. And Mark uses that word to describe the life and ministry of Jesus. The thrust of this passage appears then when we, when we hear Jesus proclaiming that very good news, doesn't it? Because that's what, Jesus, that's what Mark tells us, jumping to the end of what we read in verse 14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus himself was proclaiming the good news. He was saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If that's the good news, what is the good news for us today? What is our response to the good news? Because indeed there has to be a response, there must be. If this is indeed good news, there must be something for us to respond with. I want, us to I want to highlight this morning two things in particular that we see. We see them in both G John's preaching and in Jesus' preaching as well, in their proclamation. The, the first thing that I want us to see is the command that our response to such good news is that we as God's people, we as humanity, would repent. Is what's, it's what's being asked of us. For John and Jesus, this is where their preaching starts. As I said, we're told in verse 4 and again in verse 15. John is preaching a baptism of repentance and Jesus says, Repent. What does that mean? Other than maybe we, we might reference it with a sign of a street corner preacher that is yelling at us with a not friendly tone. Repent simply means to change your mind. In its most simplistic sense, it means to change your mind. But don't hear in that you need to know more, you need to think harder. Don't hear in that you need to gather more information to make, to make the right decision. When the scriptures speak of the mind, it's speaking of a change, in a change of mind, it's speaking of a change of purpose, a change of direction, a change of meaning. It's the call not to fix ourselves. It's the call of God to turn from ourselves to see him more clearly in what he's accomplished for us. 
And there's two things that, that, follow, that I want to follow up with in this passage. The first is that this call to repent is nothing less than the authoritative call of God to his people. It wasn't John's idea. It wasn't any of our idea. It was the, the authoritative call of God to his people. Everything about John's life here, down to the very clothes that he wore and the very food that he ate, tells us that John was speaking on God's authority. You see, John isn't the beginning of what's happening here. If you look back at verse 2, notice, notice how, he, how Mark begins. He cites Isaiah the prophet, he tells us, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You see, for Mark, the, the gospel of Jesus, the good news that Jesus himself was proclaiming, didn't begin in the first century A.D., it began long before that, and so he references the Psalms, now what, or these, these prophets. Now what Mark is referencing in verse 3 is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. But the first part of his reference actually isn't from the prophet Isaiah. If you have a study Bible or a Bible with references, it may even make note of that. But you see, what Mark was doing was part of a common practice of his day, of taking scriptures that had familiar words, repeated words and repeated ideas, and sort of linking them together under one heading. For Mark, that link is the word prepare. You see, the first part, what scholars tell us is the, the first part of Mark's reference here is from, actually from the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, where God speaks to his people. He says this, Behold, I send an angel, or a messenger, before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. God is preparing a place for his people. He's preparing them for what he is to do next. And then Mark links that with, with Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then finally, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, John's message bears the authority of God himself. That was the job of the prophets. It was to declare the truth of God for the people of God, for them to respond accordingly. accordingly. Then as we look into verses 4 and 5, as we, as we hear John begin to speak, we see John matching up with what was expected. He's fulfilling what the prophets foretold would happen. That there'd be somebody in the wilderness crying out, shouting, not in a comfortable kind of, hey, guys, listen to me, listen to me, but shouting to the point of being awkward. It was so loud, and people came out to him in droves. John was fulfilling what was prophesied about him in verses 4 and 5. And then, in, and then as we keep reading in, in, in this same section, in verse 6, we're told this, this strange detail that, we, that may be familiar to you about, about how John was dressed with camel's hair and a, bolt, a cord of leather around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. You see, John was bearing the garb, wearing the garb of a prophet, from second, first, second Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we read that Elijah, one of the prophets of God, wore the same outfit. We're told later in Mark's gospel, in fact, that this is indeed what John is referencing in, in the way that, he, way that he dressed. The call to repent was not simply John's idea. It was not simply a good idea. It was the call of God to his people. A few years ago, a speech given by Steve Jobs in 1983 surfaced on an audio cassette, believe it or not, if you know what an audio cassette is. But a speech that he gave in 1983 where he spoke about a device that we want to put and that we want to put in, 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 in which we want to put an incredibly great computer in a book that you can carry around with you. We really want to do it with a radio link in it so you don't have to, look at, to hook up to anything. 
This was 1983. Some of us weren't even born yet. Some of us were young, barely old enough to remember 1983. But what he's prophesying, what he's, what he's speaking about is, is the iPad, the, the tablet computer that we could carry around with us. That was his idea, and it was amazing to think that he was, he was able to, to anticipate that coming. Jesus wasn't somehow, John, Jesus wasn't somehow John's idea. John was not ahead of the curve and brilliant beyond his contemporaries. John was speaking on the authority of God alone. But there's something else I want you to hear in this call to repentance. It's not only the authoritative call of God to his people, it's the authoritative call of God to his people to come back to him. Look again at verses 2, 3, and 4. As we take note of the, the, take note of the content of the prophecy, the message is to get ready because the Lord is coming to us. That was the message, prepare the way, make straight his paths. Get ready because he is about to appear to you, his people. It's what he was there to do. It's what he was there to bring them, the message of hope, the message of grace. If you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, if you listen to it this holiday season even, you know that after the overture that anticipates all the music that we're about to hear, the first words you hear from the Messiah in the first vocal piece, the first choral piece, are the words comfort comfort my people, in English anyway. Comfort, comfort my people, the words of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. We've already seen that Mark is quoted from chapter 40, verse 3. But the message of God to his people was a message of comfort. Yes, he was coming. Yes, he's calling them to confess their sins. Yes, he's calling them to face the rebellion against him and their disobedience to him. But the message that was coming was a message of comfort because it was a message that God was coming to, him, to his people. It was the message that God was saying to his people, I am coming to be with you. This is the message of grace. It's the message of to, to turn to God himself. As I've said earlier, repentance is not the call to go and fix yourself. Rather, it's to turn from your sins and to run to God's gracious presence, to, God, to run to God's gracious arms themselves. What this tells us, y'all, is that God is real. God is present in his world. Do you hear him challenging your authority over your world? Do you hear him calling you to confess your sins, calling you to repent, to turn from your self-reliance, to turn from your view of your own authority in your life? Can you hear him challenging your coping mechanisms that are harming you and those around you? It's been a difficult year. All of us have probably tried some way of self-medication, but where has that left you? What has that told you is true and is real? Is it substance abuse? It was losing yourself in entertainment or exercise? Is it running and hiding? God's call to us is to come out of hiding, to go find him because he is present. When he says repent, though, remember, he's, call, he's not calling us to grovel. He's not calling us to simply feel bad about ourselves. He's calling us to run into his arms, to run into his gracious presence. The call is to the one who is, who is in authority over all of life. We want to run and hide. And he calls us out into the open to admit who we are, to admit where we are, and to find his grace. But he doesn't just call us to repent, does he? The second part of Jesus' words are believe in the gospel. And we see this as well in John's preaching as well. Neither John nor Jesus stop at repent, thankfully. They don't stop at simply looking at your sin. The Christian life, you see, is not simply about focusing and, and remembering and thinking day and night about what you've done wrong and how you are wrong. John describes one who would come after him. 
He even goes to, to, the, to the length of saying, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Jesus says, believe in the gospel. What is it to believe? First of all, I want you to hear that what Mark is telling us is that Jesus is with us. Beloved, Jesus is with you. Look again at verse 9. What do we hear, what do we hear happening? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Interesting. He came to Galilee where John was. He went out into the wilderness to find this John who was preaching. And what did we learn about John? Look, look back again at verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, Scripture tells us that Jesus was without sin. So Jesus wasn't confessing his sins. But what he was doing was Jesus was taking the step forward to John as one of those who came to John. He enters into our mess as one of us. He's saying, I'm identifying with you, my people. I have nothing to confess, but I will gladly take upon the burden that you bear of your sin and take it as my own. Jesus is with us, beloved. He identifies it with us. But there's something more. Jesus is also for us. Look at verses 12 and 13. And again, see, notice what happens there. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. We're back in the wilderness. The animals are there, but the enemy is there as well. Now, God, for God's people, hearing these words initially, they would have been familiar with the wilderness because the wilderness was a part of the experience of the history of Israel, of God's people. You see, after he had freed them from Egypt, freed them from slavery, they began to grumble because life was not what they wanted it to be. It was not what they expected, and so they complained. And God said, I will provide for you. I will take care of you. I will lead you. And they complained and grumbled more until eventually it got to the point in Numbers 14 where God said, enough, enough of your grumbling, enough of your rebellious heart towards my, my provision for you. And he said, the adults in your group will not make it into the land that I have promised you. You will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You see, the wilderness for God's people was this place of judgment, this place even of punishment, this place of reminder that God is still God and that he's in a place of authority. And yet for Jesus, what we find him doing in, in verses 12 and 13 is entering this wilderness for us and not rebelling. He followed the leading of the Spirit of God into the wilderness because that's where God would have him, because that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in rebellion, in grumbling and complaining, in disbelief. And Jesus comes there and finds us there to bring us hope. The message is that Jesus is with us and that Jesus is for us. I read an article yesterday reflecting on the, the, the industries in 2020 that have actually done well. Things like the pet industry, the bike industry, and even the therapy industry has done well, apparently, because we, we realize our need much more. In fact, a poll was taken recently, and, and Americans have concluded that, that this year has been worse than it has been, that our, our mental health in this year has been worse than it has been at any point in the last two decades. The writer of the article concluded with this simple thought. In 2020, you're only human if you're falling apart. In 2020, you're only human if you're falling apart. We get that, don't we? We get, it, now it sounds like a bit of a downer, and, and I'll admit that, but at the same time, if we're honest, it's been part of our human experience to be frustrated, right? To be angry, to be impatient, maybe even more than usual. To be human is to be falling apart. 
And what Mark is telling us is that Jesus stepped into this part of our world, into this experience, to identify with us and to be for us where we could not be for ourselves. But there's one glaring thing that we've glossed over somewhat intentionally at this point. Because I want you to know that Jesus is for you, with you, and I want you to know that he's for you. But why this matters is because Jesus is God. Mark begins by talking about, telling us that he's telling us this account of the Christ, the Son of God. Both of those designations are Mark telling us that his assumption is that Jesus is indeed divine, that he is truly God. He is the only Son of God. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one that God, for whom God's people have been waiting for centuries to bring freedom and hope and eternal life. Jesus is God. It's Mark's conviction. It's the Old Testament promise in verses 2 and 3 because who is going to come? Not another, pro- a messenger was going to come to prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord himself was going to come among his people. And this is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. We're told in verses 7 and 8 this description of one who would come after, one who would come after John. What does he tell us in 7 and 8? He says, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, for John to use this designation that someone was going to come after him would follow him, typically in in his day and age would mean he was going to have a disciple that would come after him and do what he did. But John's message is to throw that on its head and say, no, 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 no. Someone's going to come after me. I'm simply preparing the way for him. And I'm not even worthy to do the most menial task. You see, in the first century, there were Hebrew slaves. The Jews had slaves of their own people. If you were in debt or you needed to provide for you and your family, you could sell yourself into slavery. But the task of untying your, your, your master's shoes was not even something required of a Hebrew slave by law. And yet John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do the lowest of jobs. He is so much greater than I am. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His point here, again, is that this is God himself who's showing up in his midst. And then look at, look at verse 11 and notice what happens there. After the baptism, the heavens are split apart and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then in verse 11, we hear this voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This harkens back to Psalm chapter two, Psalm two, as, as for me I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is God. This is what Mark was writing to tell us, that the Son of God is with us and the Son of God is for us, but it is indeed God himself who is in our midst. In chapter 8, Jesus would ask his closest followers, who do, you, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And the answer was simple from the Apostle Peter. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one for whom we've been waiting. And then in chapter 15, as Jesus himself hangs on the cross at the pinnacle of this gospel account, it's what Mark is rushing to tell us, that Jesus came to live, die, and rise again in our place. We hear the words of the Roman centurion staring at this man bloodied on a cross, hanging there in dead. And his confession is simply this. This is the Son of God. Beloved, this is what is before us. When Jesus, and when Jesus says believe, and when, when John points beyond himself to Jesus, what is offered to us as people is Jesus himself. What he says to us is Jesus is with you. He is not scared by your sin. 
He's not scared by your indecision. He's not scared by your lack of being as informed as you think you must be about life and about faith. So a headline in a newspaper this week that said, even extroverts are feeling awkward in these times. Jesus is not scared off by your awkwardness. In fact, all the awkwardness, the self-doubt, and the fear that we feel when trying to relate to one another, Jesus knows none of it. He is with you. And Jesus is for you. Christ has endured on your behalf. When you want to give up, he has endured. When belief is a struggle for you, when you're unsure and uncertain, when you feel yourself plagued with doubts, Jesus is sure and he is for you. He has endured the wilderness. He has endured death. He has endured suffering. He has endured rejection. He has endured the grave and has risen again for you. And beloved, what is key here is that this one is God. Jesus is God. This is where it begins and this is where it ends. I want to ask you, if you're considering Jesus this morning, if you're considering what Christianity is, what it is to believe, this is what you need to wrestle with more than anything else. I I know from my own experience and from listening to students, you have questions about ethics, about what is right and wrong and what the Bible says, what it says about marriage, what it says about parenting, what it says about how to do your job, what it says about where you're supposed to live. I know that we all have rightfully have all these kinds of questions, but this is the key. And I implore you to wrestle with this question. Is Jesus divine? Is he who he says he is? Is he who the scriptures tell us that he is? Ask us. Wrestle with these questions if you have them. Ask your questions. State your doubts. Put it into words. Wrestle with this. But this is where you must wrestle because it all hinges upon this. Beloved, this is the Christian life. Repent and believe. I heard this somewhere, and I don't remember where. I wish I could take credit for it myself, but, but I want you to see this call of the Christian life to repent and believe. It's the pedals of a bicycle. You ever tried to ride a bike with one pedal? In your head, you think it's possible, but it's not. Because as soon as you push down, unless you're going in a, in a steep hill, unless you, when you, once you push down, the pedal wants to stay down, and there's, nowhere, there's nothing to push against for the other, the other side to go. The Christian life is not simply about living in your sin, and and feeling bad about what you've done and who you are. The Christian life is about repentance, it is about facing yourself, and it's about turning from yourself and believing and returning to Jesus. The promise for us, that's set before us, the call to us is to repent and believe. This is the gospel for us. The good news is this, your king is here. Your king is present with you, your king is for you, your king is God. Your king calls you to, to repent on his own authority, and we must respond. Beloved, your king is here. I'm going to close with this thought by a German theologian written in the first part of the, 19th, or the 20th century. He said this about the proclamation of Jesus' kingship. Everyone who, pro- who proclaims the rule of God affirms that God does not place our security into our own hands and expects us to save ourselves. We are not able to do so. God himself is the one who saves us. His good work heals our evil works. His righteousness provides the remedy for our unrighteousness. Its truth sets us free from our lies and illusions. And his creating power is stronger than death. Beloved, this is your king who has come for you. He calls you to repent and he calls you to believe. 
We, we find our king in the wilderness, even in 2020 and 2021 as we start the year, because that's where he came to find us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have set your king on your holy hill, the psalm tells us. Your king is in place. He is seated because the work that he came to accomplish on this planet is done. Life, death, and resurrection are all accomplished. Father, I pray in this year that you would grow faith in us that would be deep and abiding, that would not be fixated on our ability to believe or our ability even to repent, but that would be fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus, the one who came, lived, died, and rose again for us. Would you so shape our hearts and our lives that you would change how we live, what we love, and how we think. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.